0: This is Radio Shock with Alex Smith. Of these global respondents, 45% said that their feelings about the climate crisis are negatively impacting their daily functioning, so disrupting their ability to eat, sleep, concentrate, go to school, go to work, be in relationship, play, have fun. Very normal things for young people to be able to access. 75% said that the future is frightening. And 56% said that they feel that humanity is doomed. All these are incredibly sad statistics to really take in about how young people are walking around and feeling. You know, 39% of them said that the climate crisis makes them hesitant to have their own children. And importantly, we found that these heavy feelings are tightly correlated with young people's sense of being betrayed by governments and lied to by leaders.
1: You know damaging climate change is just starting to roll. How do kids and young people handle that? Journalist, author, and academic Britt Ray is here to tell us with her new book, Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. Dr. Ray is a Canadian transplanted to Stanford University and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She is a postdoctoral fellow investigating the mental health consequences of ecological disruption. You may be dealing with those impacts. Today's youth certainly are. From California, Britt Ray, welcome to Radio Ecoshock.
0: Thank you so much. It's good to be here.
1: Who is Generation Dread and what defines them?
0: Generation Dread, as I explore it in the book, is really anyone, despite their age, who is able right now to feel a sense of distress based on their awareness and experience of negative environmental change, and impending climate crises that are turning into quite a quite a disruptive future that we have to contend with, so I don't mean to only isolate the young people with that title, although I do make the case based on very compelling data that we have that this distress disproportionately affects younger folks among us, so gen Z, millennials, and this makes sense, of course. the climate crisis is something that they've been aware of for. Basically, their entire lives. The fact that they have unfairly and unjustly inherited it, along with the duty to clean it up, this is a very difficult truth to contend with, especially long before you have the opportunity to go out into the world, vote in order to uphold power, to try and change systems that would address the threat. And, you know, typically this is something that young people understand before they can go out and explore important aspects of their identity. So it becomes quite crushing. In terms of the anxiety and the anger and the grief. One thing that has emerged in recent years as a tagline for all this is eco anxiety, which the American Psychological Association defines as the chronic fear of environmental doom. And those of us who are researching it argue that it's more than just anxiety, it's really this umbrella of feelings, many co occurring challenging emotions. Like when I mentioned grief, anger, maybe a sense also of helplessness or powerlessness, things that rob us of agency uh, to be able to face how daunting this is. And so the difficult emotions need tending to in order to help people live with them better and cope, but also use them adaptively and constructively to be able to take collective action because we have a lot of harm to still reduce and it is not too late when it comes to young people why I say we know that they are really impacted by this one study that my colleagues and I did last year looked at climate anxiety, its scope and burden in 10,000 young people around the world so they are 16 to 25 years old and we were surveying people in the Philippines and India and Nigeria but also places like Finland and France and the US and some other nations and we found that of these global respondents, 45% said that their feelings about the climate crisis are negatively impacting their daily functioning, so disrupting their ability to eat, sleep, concentrate, go to school, go to work, be in relationship, play, have fun, very normal things for young people to be able to access. Seventy-five percent said that the future is frightening, and 56 percent said that they feel that humanity is doomed all these are incredibly sad statistics to really take in about how young people are walking around and feeling. You know, 39% of them said that the climate crisis makes them hesitant to have their own children. And importantly, we found that these heavy feelings are tightly correlated with young people's sense of being betrayed by governments and lied to by leaders. Introducing this concept of institutional betrayal and the psychological injury that can occur when people with less power rely on those with more power to protect them and they fail to uphold that responsibility. So Generation Dread is any and all of us who are feeling these forms of distress about the climate and wider ecological crisis, but we need to pay particular attention to the way that it's affecting young people all over the world, as I mentioned, in some lower- and middle-income nations with higher hazard or exposure in the climate crisis, as well as high-income nations. It's something we can see everywhere.
1: Well, those are terrible statistics for young people. I do know that the baby boomers grew up knowing their city could be incinerated at any moment by an exchange of nuclear weapons. And uh, we were trained to dive under desks or jump into a ditch if a big flash announced the atomic bomb had arrived. How is that different from the stress young people are growing up through today?
0: There are certainly some important overlaps and similarities with that kind of existential stress between heightened nuclear threat and the climate crisis and some key differences. So when it comes to nuclear annihilation, of course, there is a true helplessness at play because whether a foreign leader drops a bomb on you suddenly, there's really not much that you can do. You're totally exposed. It's extremely unjust. And living with that waking fear is incredibly existentially difficult and has been for young people, of course, through time, as you mentioned, who had to do duck and cover drills under their desks. It has produced this psychic numbing effect in in both crises where that helplessness one feels under you know, potential nuclear annihilation and the helplessness we tend to feel in the face of the climate crisis because of how overarching the threat is, is somewhat similar. However, the, the threat of the climate crisis is extremely different than the nuclear threat in that it requires action from all of us because we're not talking about detonate do or don't we're talking about the fabric of our world and every single choice that goes into the way that we are living day in day out by burning more fossil fuels we have a lot of agency in this crisis as compared with the nuclear example because we've known about it for decades and we've had opportunities to deploy solutions and have been forgoing that for a variety of perverse reasons bound up in power and politics. However, we still are on this, you know, moving escalator here. Yes, it's kind of going downwards, but we can do things to turn around and and crawl up the escalator before we hit the bottom floor. And so this idea of the helplessness we feel is, is a sham in comparison with nuclear threat. We have a lot of things we can do together to address this at any moment. We, we have to, you know, make, have changes to affect our world and how we're living. So basically there is a similar impact on how people are psychologically responding, which, which can produce some apathy or, you know, it's, it's actually not that people don't care. It's rather just that it's anxiety inducing and it, and it makes people feel uncomfortable when they see their own complicity with holding up high emitting systems And yet, there's lots we can do. So it's really about what's required of us as individuals at this time that makes the the climate threat different and complicated in our psychological response as compared with just being subjected to a nuclear attack.
1: You got your doctorate in communications at the University of Copenhagen, and you were moving along in a direction, and then something seems to have turned you toward this new brand new field, really, about about eco-anxiety and, and the impacts of knowing about climate change and the other ecological problems. What drove you into that new direction?
0: Yeah, so I was just wrapping up my, my PhD when I had a profound experience with eco-anxiety and, and grief about how dangerous the climate crisis now is and what we have to deal with going forward. It really occurred when my partner and I in 2017 started talking seriously about trying to get pregnant, and as a science communicator ingesting all these climate reports and squaring them with the lack of effective action from our political leadership, I could not move into that decision easily. It birthed a painful dilemma, and I had a hard time wrapping my head around whether or not I felt comfortable doing this. Was it still wise to have a child? Was it a compassionate thing to do to bring a person into a situation where they're going to have to deal with climate breakdown for the rest of their lives? Of course, with a lot of uncertainty around how bad it's going to get and how nations will respond and when. And so that forced me to confront some ecologically linked emotions that I hadn't had to before on such a deep level And I became troubled because it was difficult, but also fascinated by this. And I thought, okay, if I'm having this intense psychological response to my awareness of the climate crisis at this stage, what does it mean for other people? What are all the other ways in which folks who are different from me are being affected, you know, psychosocially, on a deeper spiritual level? And I thought, this is something that is rather underexplored. I wonder if I can do the research enough to see if, if this is substantial, for, substantial enough to write a book on, so I, I made a, a one-hour radio program for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in this area. I discovered I had just touched the tip of the iceberg. There was so much more to explore, and I started doing my research. Generation Dread, in order to understand the more manifold, widespread mental health impacts of the climate crisis. Importantly, to under you know to be able to describe the problem, but then push through to the other side of grasping the solutions that we have, the approaches for resilience building and getting our communities prepared in order to move through all these changes in an adaptive way that brings strength and, and protections for people's mental health and emotional.
1: We will get back to the things that we could do. I wonder, climate disruption is so huge. It reaches species everywhere Yet, even without greenhouse gases, human made plastics and toxic chemicals spread from the Himalayas to the deepest ocean trench. Humans slash down forests, we kill things off. Is it a mistake to bundle all that into the label climate change?
0: So, the way that I bring those connections forth in the book is by using the frame of the planetary health crisis. I find it much more useful than going down the individual tunnels of each anthropogenic violent impact on the environment that we have. And what this framing articulates is how the human project has outstripped the planet's capacity to support our lifestyles in such a way that we're seeing it in terms of water scarcity, in terms of vector-borne diseases, chronic diseases from air pollution, climate change and dangerous disasters, the biodiversity crisis, you know, the pandemic. All of these things, share the same root cause, which is how humans dominate the natural world and extract from it in ways that are now presenting humanity with the number one threat to our shared human health. So it's really outlining the the public health argument and trying to quantify these costs to human health based on how our behaviors have been pillaging the environment for a long time. It's now, you know, accumulating in these negative ways that we ought to pay attention to, it's, it's effective at not only drawing the connections between microplastics and the climate crisis, for example, but also being able to say why we need to do something about it, because for many decades of environmental campaigning, telling people to care about polar bears has not been working, for example. And this really gets the teeth into the self-interest of, of humans who want to be able to protect their health.
1: In the book, you introduce us to Earth Emotions, Glenn Albrecht, and his concept of solastalgia. What is that?
0: Solastalgia is a term that Glenn Albrecht came up with to describe the homesickness a person can have when they are still at home, because the environment has changed so much in that place of home that it's no longer recognizable, and therefore you can't access the solace that you once did there. He had this feeling when first looking out upon some rolling hills in Western Australia that he played in as a child, but when returning some years later, saw that it had been transformed into open tar pit mining, and he was struck with such a sense of loss and sadness, but importantly, this this mixture of nostalgia and the, the missing of the solace that the place once gave him, which forced him to come up with this portmanteau to be able to describe what it was that he was feeling. And it's been interesting because while he came up with with that term many years ago, I believe around 2010 or so, it has since been shared with many communities around the world who say, yes, this is exactly what we feel. This is what is going on as our landscapes erode, as our livelihoods are no longer things that we can uphold because we can't fish here anymore, for example, or we can't traipse along the ice because it's melting um, to do what our ancestors have for thousands of years or because this coastline we call home um, is being lost with erosion and sea level rise. And so it's really struck a chord with many people that, yes, it's it's grief and it's worry about what's happening, but it's also just this, this deep sense of, of loss of the comfort and solace that, that place-based relationships give us.
2: Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org.
1: You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest, Dr. Britt Ray. Her new book is Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. Your book takes a three-step approach. We become aware of humanity's dangerous direction first, and then that's followed by an emotional reaction, and then hopefully a transition into activism or a purpose, does everyone follow this path, or can some people go straight from ecological awareness right into activism without suffering through the feeling stage?
0: Certainly people have their own pathways, and not everyone hits each step in the same order. I try to highlight the importance of feeling all of the Challenging emotions that arise with understanding that our, our connections that we hold dear in the world are being disintegrated, and our life support systems are naturally, when disintegrating, going to produce an, a difficult environmental impact within us because it shows that we care and that we are wakeful to what's happening. And it's really a compassionate and humane approach because we want to uphold the health of life support systems and other species and vulnerable communities. Um, and so being able to acknowledge that and let the feelings be there sounds simple, actually very hard for a lot of people to do. A lot of people have not been welcomed into a space of inviting negative emotions as important information, being able to integrate them without self judgment or shame, especially coming off of many years of kind of neoliberal thinking and progress and toxic positivity and things that um, would easily produce some shame around feeling difficult things. Then, Understanding, we can do things to transform these emotions within ourselves and work on psychosocial and emotional resilience building skills. Um, There's kind of an internal activism toolkit to make people deal with the fact that it's hard to have your eyes open to the problem and work on this issue. You can easily fall into spaces of burnout because it, it demands endless energy from you and you still might feel like you're not making a dent. We need to be able to do things to support ourselves individually inside and then also come together with others and take those transformative actions to change the world itself, which is, of course, the main intervention. We need to feel better. We need climate action in order to feel better about this entire crisis. However, what you point out is that some people, again, because of this kind of cultural of belittlement we live in or um, you know, an aversion to difficult emotions, um, fear that if we let them in, we'll just kind of be subsumed by them, can try to offset the emergence of distress into this sentence we've heard again and again through time, that action is the antidote to despair. And so instead of letting the feelings be there, can just offset them immediately and then roll their sleeves up and get to acting, which is great. Of course, we need much more action and it's super urgent and so all that is productive as long as you're also doing what's needed to support the existential feelings because this crisis is basically ripping away people's ontological security, a sense of order and continuity in their life, which can have a lot of behavioral impacts if not cared for, because these are scary truths that we have to deal with and we'd rather, you know, many people show us we'd rather avoid them, turn away, um, stick our heads in the sand. And so whether we consciously approve of this going on within us or not, like these feelings will be under the surface and they can pop up and and produce maladaptive coping if we're not paying attention to them or cause us to snap and burn out when they do, do emerge. So I try to encourage people to... Um, Through the book and through the writing and and knowledge of climate-aware therapists like Caroline Hickman really argue for an inside-out approach to activism that doesn't offset all the distress just into internal action with the expectation that that'll take away all the pain and you'll just be fine. Because we're in a battle of many losses here, and we know we're going to have to continue to bear witness to struggle, to loss of human life, to loss of species, to loss of wild places as we continue to do what we can to save what we can. All of that is really hard on a person, and so that's why I, you know, hope to provide examples for people who don't take that middle step to validate why they might want to. And then there's others who also don't take the action, right? They might just get lost in the emotions and actually fall into a crevice and and get trapped in a pit of despair, which can breed a sense of fatalism or this um, inaccurate belief that it's too late to make any difference, which kind of narratively forecloses the future. People especially if dealing with these thoughts and feelings on their own and not having them be interrupted and supported by others who can validate them and share the feelings with them are more subject to be able to um, more authentically connect with a, a feeling of doom which, of course, becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy if there's no kind of robust sense of being able to make a change, make a difference that matters, and, and make meaning from all of this distress. So it, it kind of goes both ways, and there's no guarantee about the path that a person might take. But um, what I've learned from my own research and my own exploration with these emotions is that it's really key to to not think either or, but think both and. It, 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 the action is both internal and external.
1: Britt, are there common emotions you find in your study of mental impacts, like keystones or signals of ecological anxiety?
0: So, yeah, I mean, people could have their sleep disrupted often, nightmares, visions. Several people I interviewed in my book discussed having these kind of visceral visions, daydreams of finding themselves in the midst of a climate disaster, walking down a New York City bustling street and seeing floodwaters rushing up, for example, Um, even though it wasn't happening, but they would feel as though it was happening, or needing to run with their child from basically war uh, over dwindling resources because of climate calamity and having them witness their child die, or having their child witness their parents die, these kinds of horrific visions that people would be stuck in because of their climate anxieties interrupting the way that they were just seeing their day-to-day world, Um, or Just a a general um, lack of concentration, inability to stop talking about their climate fears and really find balance and be able to explore the other joyful, nourishing things that are also true about life or maybe feeling the really urgent need to do something super efficiently all of a sudden like recycle or you know, no longer being able to be in relationship with people who don't care about the climate emergency, just becoming super intolerable to have to share space with maybe parents or friends or partners who disregard and disavow the importance all of this becomes too painful for a person in acute climate distress, and so they'll drop those relationships. Um, Changing behaviors in other ways, maybe refusing to have children, refusing to ever fly again, these sorts of things. There's, There's lots of different ways it can show up.
1: I'm not sure refusing to ever fly again is is definitely climate anxiety. I mean, Kevin Anderson uh, of the Tyndall Center has uh, promised never to fly again, but he's doing it pretty rationally as a scientist, saying, I just don't want to add to those emissions up there.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't mean that it is the cause of all people's decisions not to fly, but climate anxiety can be a, a way in which someone comes to that decision. And also, climate anxiety is rational. It's not that this is an irrational issue or um, a pathology or some kind of disorder that a person has within themselves. It's them being awoken to how severe the threat is. Of course, it can become become unhelpfully strong, and a person can take it on too seriously within their own life, and it starts to disrupt their emotions in ways that require professional support. Some of those examples I gave you are really extreme examples of how it shows up in a person's life. They're not meant to describe everyone who could self-assess as climate-anxious. Um, But what mental health professionals argue is that this is not in the DSM and it's important that it stays out because it's not something you can get a diagnosis for due to the fact that it is a healthy response to a very real unfolding civilizational threat and we ought to feel these things. In fact, it's a bit more worrying to, to think about those who don't feel any distress about what's going on because they're still able to deploy such strong psychological defenses to it, which are not helpful for creating the action that's needed. So... Not not to at all take away from dr. Kevin Anderson's um rational thinking there. he could do it just from looking at the data and understand it very well without feeling anxiety, but also it's the kind of it's the kind of impact that can help ease some people's anxiety when they see that, hey, I'm getting really distressed about what's going on, my environmental values are way over here but I'm gesturing with my left hand far out to the left, but I'm seeing my actions are way over here, gesturing to the right. And that big gap between my values, and my actions, is causing me psychological discomfort. I can make some decisions in order to close that gap, make it more narrow, and that will bring me a bit more comfort.
1: I note that science was originally developed almost exclusively by men, and one of its rules is keep emotions out of science. It's like there's no crying in science. Uh, you You just are supposed to stick to the facts. Is that line being crossed now, and does it really need to be crossed when we're dealing with this kind of information?
0: Yeah, it's not working anymore to keep the emotions out of the science. It is becoming too mentally exhausting for many people working in these fields of conservation biology, climate science, and other kinds of environmentally focused professions to bear witness to what the data shows, um, what the observations make completely clear and worth understanding how much harder it's going to get because of the lack of action and denial of um, how serious this has been over time. And so it, it becomes just overwhelming in the sense that some professionals quit in order to get some relief. It's just, it, it is too much, and these are emotions that they're contending with. It's the burnout of having to exist in this system that is not deploying the solutions we've had at our fingertips. Um, And, well, yes, there's a lot of collegial concern in science that if your colleagues see you acting in a certain way that applies emotional cadence or communication, you know, expression to what you're doing, that you're going to get judged as not being a good scientist, you're not being an objective scientist. But that really upholds this taboo in our culture, which says that scientists can't be working from empirical data and simultaneously be full humans who have emotions about what they know. That is just not what it means to be human. People have both. We must stop this damaging, you know, expectation that people can kind of bifurcate themselves into just being rational, empirical measurement machines or those who are irrational and somehow dangerous because they have emotional responses to stuff. Um, That's not how humans work, and that's a very kind of outdated and Cartesian approach to things. So there are increasingly more scientists coming out to bravely say enough is enough. Like, we need to take a stand. We have tried to protect our data throughout decades so that we don't come off as activists, we don't speak with a whiff of emotion in order that we're not going to be disregarded by policymakers, for example, as being on the side of climate disaster, let's say, so that they won't listen to what we are trying to impress upon them and therefore we're trying to protect our data so it can actually affect policy change, if that all makes sense. But at at this late stage in the day with the stakes this high, the polytest, the, you know, professional etiquette, is not sufficient for the task at hand because it isn't expressing the urgency and it isn't making the dire nature of, of this clear. And truth be told, many scientists have these emotions. So, you know... Being able to confront them can help people move through them without burning out and needing to quit out of feeling just so demotivated by a culture that that really isn't listening and taking these scientists' empirical knowledge seriously.
1: Can you give us a couple of quick hints or snapshots of the advice that you might offer listeners to get from climate anxiety into a more purposeful action or, or meaning for our lives?
0: It's really important to step out of isolation in these thoughts and feelings. We don't have social norms around how to process this stuff still. It's kind of disenfranchised grief, the kind of grief that is not typically recognized, which people will be familiar with around cases of suicide, abortion, miscarriage, that sort of a thing where it's awkward and difficult to raise with others because of this lack of normalization. Same with, you know, being really overwhelmed with glacier melt, permafrost thaw, communities experiencing uh, drought-induced starvation right now, what have you, because of the climate crisis. And so we need to be able to find ways to speak about these things with others because we say a lot when we say nothing at all. We say that something doesn't matter by neglect of talking about it. So talking about it makes it matter, but importantly, finding others who can validate and support the feelings and legitimize them and won't say, don't be so dire, you're fine, or you're just being dramatic, which can happen to people. And absolutely does not help um, if they feel, you know, that they're having their concerns minimized in that way. And increasingly, there are specific containing settings, so groups and programs that are are arising, especially in just the last handful of years, to give people these spaces where they know they can meet people who will give permission to the feelings and mirror them, and then they can start to feel more at ease and in good company. So something like the Good Grief Network, which runs a 10-step program based on Alcoholics Anonymous for moving people through climate distress to meaningful actions at this time. It's a way of reinvesting the energy that one has lost from being so stressed out into purpose and action in ways that will stick because you're led on a journey to author your your amount of change and action-taking yourself and what that looks like, or something like Climate Awakening, which are these virtual drop-in sessions where people can have open-hearted conversations online with others three times a week to get that containment for the emotions or something like the all-we-can-save circles or climate cafes, which are decentralized meetings that do similar things. I mean, it says something about where we're at as a culture that all of these, these resources are cropping up. It's like a cottage industry of support tools. But then, you know, importantly, it is, it is really key that one can, can let the distress and the despair and the hopelessness and the helplessness or whatever it is that one might be feeling Let it be there and actually lean towards it because the only way out of this is through. We can't avoid these feelings and they're totally legitimate. And the key is to not get stuck in any one dire place with them. So to learn to harness them requires movement and being open enough to get curious about these feelings and lean into them. We know this from a lot of interventions for dealing with anxiety and depression and other forms of of distress too, um, this can be really helpful. It allows the permission that removes the judgment and then valuing these feelings and having them teach you things as you, as you feel them can really kind of whack away the distractions in life um, that might otherwise be clogging your sphere and can point out some existential meaning within you about, okay, let's reassess the situation here. Let's like really own up to the severity of the predicament. And then you can engage in what's called meaning-focused coping, which says I can express my existential goals, values, and beliefs and seek forms of connection and communication that allow me to to tap into what I find most existentially meaningful. And that process can bring people into ways of being at this time that will make them feel much better because they know that they're making meaning from the distress and, you know, in whatever way they, they want to addressing this issue. So there's many more coping ideas than that, but those are some broad strokes that can I've seen transform a lot of people who have been otherwise trapped in some pretty dark places when contemplating the climate and ecological crisis, and then they end up feeling far less plagued by the feelings and far more useful and can really step into some empowerment and agency and know that they can tolerate difficult things while also working towards a better future.
1: That's great, great resources. As we wrap up here, how do listeners connect with you and your newsletter, Jen Dread?
0: Oh, thank you. Um, so Jen Dredd, the newsletter, is free. It's at dread G-E-N-D-R-E-A-D, com. You can um, also find me on Instagram at Jen underscore dread or on Twitter at Britt Ray, with two T's, B-R-I-T-T-W-R-A-Y. And then my new book, Generation Dread, um, is out in anywhere you can get books now.
1: We've been speaking with Dr. Britt Ray from Stanford and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine Center on climate change and planetary health, and that's really what she's about. You can get more tips to follow up in my blog at ecoshock.org or just go to brittray.com. Britt, thank you for helping us out on Radio Ecoshock.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Alex. Good to talk with
1: you. I'm Alex Smith. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock
2: with your host, Alex Smith.
1: There was a lot packed into that Britt Ray interview going by pretty fast. As with all my interviews, you can listen again, free, no sign-ups, no ads, just listen, take notes, and think again. Find all past interviews at ecoshock.org. Next up, corporations, governments, and some green activists are pushing forests to offset continuing carbon emissions or even to limit warming. Find out why new science questions all that. Whether forests will absorb more or less carbon dioxide from the atmosphere could affect the state of the world. Forest ecosystems currently offset about one-quarter of annual emissions by humans, it's said. Large multinational companies claim they use forests to offset their continuing greenhouse gas pollution. Does that really work? And as important as all that is, the real issue may be larger. Can forests help save us as the climate changes? or will trees add more carbon to the atmosphere? Two new studies address these questions. Dr. William Anderegg is a co-author of both papers published this May in the journal Science and Ecology Letters. Anderegg is Associate Professor of Ecology in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Utah. And from Utah, William Anderegg, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: How big is the forest offset market, and could you give us any examples of companies who buy them trying to make up for their greenhouse gas pollution?
2: The market is fairly large, and it's growing, and there's, I guess, two uh, different types of these carbon offset markets. One uh, is is what's called a compliance market, and that means it's part of a, a legal mechanism and a government policy. And one is the voluntary carbon market, where Uh, you know, URI or or companies could go purchase carbon offsets through this voluntary market. It's a little bit hard to get concrete numbers on this, but it's pretty likely this offsets market, both of these markets combined, are in the many billions of dollars at this point and are are likely to grow quite a bit over the next decade.
1: It's interesting. I looked this up and the voluntary market is relatively small. They're hoping to get to $1 billion, which is sort of chump change on Wall Street. But the mandatory market, it's about $285 billion, according to one estimate. And you're right, the, the estimates are all over the place. But it, it does show that there's hundreds of billions of dollars going towards this. Now, in the meantime, we have climate deniers who say more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is good, more CO2 will stimulate plant growth. I know one American scientist has been testing that theory in Manitoba, Canada for over a decade. Do we have conclusive evidence that increased carbon dioxide will stimulate more capture of carbon by
2: trees? You know, this is a very uh, complex area and a pretty complicated question to test. It's really, really hard to test this directly and over long periods of time and at the scales that really matter for whole whole ecosystems. You know, the, the breadth of evidence suggests there is some stimulating effect, but the biggest question, one of the biggest questions is, will that continue into the future? and There's a lot of concern and a lot of mounting evidence that direct climate impacts may actually overwhelm any potential benefits of CO2. And there are certainly regions around the globe, like the western U.S., where this is already seeming to happen.
1: Your article in The Conversation offers a helpful analogy of a cart with two horses. Do you want to tell us about that?
2: Absolutely. Uh, So... One of the big questions that scientists are really racing to understand is what's the dominant driver of tree growth? Tree growth is where, you know, especially growth in the stem, these long-lived woody tissues, that's where the carbon that needs to be sequestered and locked up for decades to centuries really is stored in many forests, that and and certain parts of the soil. (laughs) If we think of tree growth as, as a cart moving down the road, It's long been this question in the field that there are maybe two driving forces, or I I think about it as as two horses hooked up to this cart. And we don't really know which of these horses is pulling and which one is kind of along for the ride. Uh, Now, the two driving forces are these two horses on the cart. One is photosynthesis, and that's the one that rising CO2 concentrations tends to stimulate. But the other is the direct effects of cell expansion and cell division in the wood. And what our study shows, what our study found in science was, in many regions of the globe, it really looks like photosynthesis may not be the main horse pulling the cart, which had really been kind of the dominant paradigm for the past 30 to 40 years. And in many regions, it really looks like it's these direct effects on wood cell growth, the expansion and division of cells, that may be really the, the horse pulling the cart. And that, that tells us in the future that actually CO2 may not be nearly as beneficial as many of our models have been expecting.
1: You also find that water availability is key to tree growth and with it carbon capture. And we have growing reports of drought in many parts of the world, including the American West. But on the other hand, a warming atmosphere should hold significantly more moisture. Other scientists predict increased precipitation in some parts of the Earth could that balance out the water limitations that you found?
2: Yeah, this is, this is one of the really unfortunate or, or brutal paradoxes of climate change, which is that there are some areas that get wetter, and in some cases we see a lot of, of these wet extremes, like more floods, but there are a lot of regions that we expect to get drier, where you see more frequent and more severe droughts, and, you know, I, I think it's, something that scientists are really racing to understand what the full net impact of that will be. But because, especially for things like crops and ecosystems, how hot and and dry the atmosphere is, that you can think of it as how much is the atmosphere sucking water out of plants and out of soils, that is a huge function of temperature. And as temperature goes up, that pull of water increases and that makes droughts a lot more stressful. So it's it's really possible to have a lot more stress on crops and a lot more stress on forests, even if precipitation, the amount of water from falling from the sky, doesn't change or even get slightly wetter. So I, I guess a key thing to realize about drought is it's not just about rainfall. It's also about how much water gets sucked out of the ground and out of plants.
1: There's been so much science done, and yet we're still finding out new things, and is that because there is more data available or are there new tools to deal with it? What? Why are we still making major discoveries about the way things as basic as trees work?
2: Yeah, well, this is one of the, the beautiful things about science is that we're always learning and, and refining our understanding of how the world works and uh, based on new evidence and data that comes in. You know, I, I think really in the past decade, we have seen a huge huge increase in the amount of, of data available and a lot of that is is kind of tied to increased data infrastructure the internet and also low-cost sensors and we're also seeing I think quite a bit more uh, use and, and easily uh, easy access of things like satellite data that are taking you know images and data of the earth globally sometimes at daily scale so this there's been this huge ramp-up in the data available to look at Earth's ecosystems, and that's some of the reasons why I think we're making, still making these really fascinating discoveries. Beyond the
1: implications for the carbon market, does this study also question some assumptions in global climate models, those same models used by governments to plan our future?
2: You know, it definitely is a call to action that we need to understand these direct controls on tree growth and we need to look critically at and, and really re-examine these effects of how much CO two might fertilize photosynthesis, and will that lead to changes in growth? And there's, uh, you know, a number of, of researchers and groups using these models that realize there are many reasons why these models may be too optimistic, particularly on the ecosystem side, because they do have this pretty strong beneficial effect of CO two encoded in the models but in many cases are really missing a lot of the detailed impacts of climate change. Um, I'm thinking, you know, very mechanistic drought impacts, for example, or, or wildfire simulation, uh, pests and pathogens, things like beetle outbreaks. We know are, are major climate change impacts on forests, but are almost entirely absent from these global climate models.
1: Well, yes. Now we're moving on to your second paper. The title is Future Climate Risks from Stress, Insects and Fire Across U.S. Forests, and William Andrag, you are the lead author. What were you looking for there?
2: What we wanted to know in this study was really a, a pretty simple question, which is how big are the climate change risks that U.S. forests face, and where are they larger? Where, what are the spatial patterns of those risks? So we looked into the past, for the past 20 to 40 years, uh, and looked at fires, climate stress like drought, and insects, And built maps of, you know, where have these impacts been the most severe and built these statistical models to connect them to climate variables. And then we used some of these future climate model projections to ask, okay, based on the past, based on our observed relationship between these impacts or these risks and climate, what does the 21st century look like for U.S. forests?
1: A huge, huge question, and I suppose everybody now wants to know, well, what did you find? Uh, That's pretty simplistic, but do you want to give us a clue?
2: Big picture finding is we are projecting pretty substantial increases in fire, in climate stress, and in insects, and that the amount of climate change is enormously important, that uh, in high-emission scenarios you see really large increases in these climate impacts, and in moderate to low-emission scenarios, um, there are still some increases, but they're much more modest. And so this really tells us that a, a lot of the future of U.S. forests hinges on how aggressive we tackle climate change soon, now. William,
1: your study included insects, as you say, that can devastate whole forests that happen here in British Columbia. But why include insects in relation to climate change?
2: You know, we've seen... Uh, Just in the past two decades, really, uh, these enormous insect outbreaks that have huge impacts. You know, they kill millions of trees. Uh, You know, the mountain pine beetle outbreak uh, in the U.S. and Canada is a great example. And there are really strong climate change connections in many of these outbreaks that things like warmer winters tend to uh, not kill a lot of the beetles that are overwintering and that That lets their populations expand. Uh, Hotter and drier summers stress the trees so they can't defend. And so all of these, there there are these really complex but really clear signals that climate change is likely to give us more of these huge beetle and insect epidemics.
1: This is Radio EcoShock. Laid up your iPod or computer with tons of free green audio from our website at www.ecoshock.com. Dot org. That's E-C-O, shock like an electric shock, dot org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest from the University of Utah is Dr. William Andrig. We're questioning how forests can help save us from worsening global warming. I recently realized that the sharp line we draw between trees and the atmosphere, it's probably wrong, really. The, the breathing of trees determines the pulse of gases in the atmosphere from carbon dioxide to oxygen, and trees emit a huge amount of these so-called volatile organic compounds. We can't see those clouds of tree gases, but they have significant impacts. Have you looked into that just as a side interest, the, the biogenic volatile organic compounds?
2: You know, we haven't studied that directly. I've, I've read some of the papers on that, but that, that hasn't been our, our focus.
1: Do you think, though, that my concept is right, that we should start to think about the trees and the atmosphere as one system, in a way?
2: You know, I, I do. I think we, we definitely have to think about the interactions and the feedbacks between the trees and the atmosphere. And, you know, this kind of happens at, at many different timescales. It happens at hourly and seasonal timescales, and then, you know, for climate change and thinking about, will forests be a net carbon sink or carbon source, and how will that ultimately affect the speed of climate change, that will play out over decades, and we need to be thinking about that and and modeling that as well.
1: Now, if we took all the satellite views over land for the last 20 years and used them to create sort of an atlas of forested land, would the empire of trees show a marked decrease or an increase? What is the state of forests now?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and it it really uh, depends on where you are in the world, And there are um, a few studies that have have looked at that really in just the past couple of years. And there are areas where forests are expanding somewhat, particularly areas that had been disturbed in the past and forests are regrowing. There are areas, of course, where people are still doing plenty of deforestation and and cutting down trees. Um, And so that you can definitely see from satellites quite clearly. And then you do start to see areas in in places like the western U.S. where the combined impacts of fire, drought, and beetles are are really driving losses of forests in some areas.
1: But has anybody just totaled it all up for a global number? You know, it's it's going up or it's going down, the forest coverage on Earth? Forest
2: coverage. Um, That is a good question. Uh, You know, off the top of my head, I can think of... The closest study that got to that, but I can't come up, don't remember the number off the top of my head.
1: Okay. I'm going to do some research, and if you find it, would you send it to me an email? I'll add it to the blog, and we'll... It seems like an important question. I mean, are we really losing force, or are we gaining them? And we should know.
2: Yeah, well, and oh, there's one study that just came out, oh, maybe six months ago, that's probably the best or the most recent analysis of this. And uh, that's probably a relevant thing to cover. You know, I, we do have a pretty good estimate from uh, measurements over the past twenty years, both on on kind of ground based measurements and scaling up, and then also looking at the atmospheric CO two levels and trying to to calculate it, scale it down. That forests um, Earth's forests are definitely still a carbon sink currently, so they are taking up more carbon than they emit, and it's a fairly substantial carbon sink. You know, it's 20 to 25 percent of human CO2. So we we do know that on net they're still uh, growing more than they're dying and taking up carbon, but we really don't have a lot of confidence if that will continue for the next century.
1: That was key information. Thank you. Now, how much of the Paris Accord's goal of limiting warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees C depends on this concept that natural forests will continue their role as a sink and and not become a source.
2: It's fairly crucial. So I guess one, one of those things, you know, the, these groups that look at uh, what are the different pathways and scenarios to getting below 1.5 C or 2 C, and some amount of, of land carbon uptake, whether it's in forests or in soils, and and soils can also come in through agriculture, those are pretty key components of almost all pathways to stay below 1.5 Celsius. So that is a pretty important component of these Paris Agreement scenarios. Now, that said, I think in talking about and thinking about the climate change risks to forests, what's really clear from lots of research is these risks ramp up non-linearly with the more warming that we have. So the odds of flipping all forests across the globe or on net flipping forests from a carbon sink to a carbon source go up a lot in high emission scenarios, and they're probably quite a bit lower in low emission scenarios. And, of course, low emission scenarios are really the only ones that we have any hope of keeping warming below 1.5 or 2 Celsius. So. We, we need forests, but I think the risks to forests are, are really highest if we don't tackle climate change.
1: And your papers look at many environmental threats to forests, from insects to fire and more, but you don't seem to quantify logging or deforestation for agriculture. Are these significant factors when estimating the future of trees during this climate shift?
2: They are quite important, yes. And roughly speaking, things like deforestation are you know responsible for about 10 to 15 percent of carbon emissions currently, and so that's a, that's a pretty substantial number, and that tells us that a, a key piece of heading off climate change and of climate policy has got to be slowing and stopping deforestation.
1: You suggest policymakers and land managers are operating with old science, which is not good enough now. What kind of new tools are needed? How, how can we bridge this gap?
2: You know, I I think that all all the policymakers and land managers I interact with are really excited to try to use the best available science and really the newest tools in science. But it's getting that data out there and getting it freely available and easily usable to stakeholders that's crucial. And so that's, um, I think that's an important call to really have open science and, and publish things, you know, to where anyone can read them and anyone can download the data but also to build the bridges and and figure out what folks need and what tools they actually would use and then have scientists and stakeholders work together to get those tools out there.
1: You've written several papers that question the use of forestry as a tool to offset carbon emissions. Do you have fundamental questions about that as a process, about whether it's real?
2: I'm fairly concerned about carbon offsets and whether they currently represent real additional and and permanent storage of carbon. I think that the more we've looked into it, the more concerns and questions I have. And it's something that I think we want to be very careful about and and look at closely before we scale up and and rely on forest offsets in any bigger manner. You know, briefly, for for forests to actually have a a true and effective climate mitigation They need to do four things. They need to be permanent, so that means they need to have that carbon locked up for at least 100 years or more. They need to actually cool the climate, so there are places on planet Earth where rolling out more tree cover can actually have a net warming impact. That's in particular places where there's a lot of snow on the ground and trees are darker than the snow beneath them, and so even though they store carbon, they can still on net heat up the planet somewhat, so they got to avoid those places. They need to account for the potential for that carbon to go elsewhere. So if you protect a forest in one region, it's possible that it just gets cut down next door or gets cut down in the country next door. So that's like a, a third piece. And then the fourth is you have to have additional carbon stored than what would have happened if you didn't pay for the offsets. And that piece of additionality is very often not met in many of these carbon offsets.
1: From the University of Utah, we've been speaking with scientist William Anderegg, and you can find links to the news and science we just talked about in my show blog at ecoshock.org. William, thank you for joining us on Radio Ecoshock. Thank you for having me. I'm Alex Smith. (music) NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is worried about rapidly increasing methane in the atmosphere. As you know, methane is about 80 times more powerful as a warming gas than carbon dioxide. The agency says, quote, Scientists estimate the amount of methane emitted in 2021 was 15% greater than the 1984 to 2006 period. Causes for the dramatic post-2007 increase are not fully understood, but NOAA scientists have concluded that changes in isotopic composition of atmospheric methane over time Point to microbial sources, likely from wetlands, agriculture, and landfills, as the dominant driver. Fossil fuel emissions, they suggest, have made a much smaller contribution. End quote. The wetland source was emphasized by radio Ecoshot guest Ewan Nisbet, who measured air flasks captured all over the world. The EU's Copernicus satellite monitoring system also shows increasing methane coming from South American wetlands and from the reservoirs of river dams there. NOAA reports methane increasing since 2006, with record growth last year, adding 16.9 parts per billion, a 162% increase over pre-industrial levels of methane in the air. As methane increases, especially from natural sources... That forces an even faster transition away from fossil fuels by humans. It reduces our time until the age of climate catastrophes. I have an interview coming up on News Science showing the UN Climate Framework underestimates the ways increasing methane damages the climate and our health. I'm working on another big study showing humanity will have to find ways to reduce methane emissions. Otherwise, We slide deep into the danger zone where civilizations and species may not survive. But getting back to Brit Ray, all of us do need to find ways to allow honest feelings coming out of these dark threats and to find others who are coping, others who are even finding their inner meaning and drive trying to save wondrous nature that supports everything. Everyone needs to run away from it now and then, I know that. I try to lead a balanced life where climate doom is kept a little separate from my joy in the garden, the river, and the hills. More bad news just lights my fire to make another Radio Shock show for you. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for tuning in and caring about our world.
0: covering the world. This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith.